Friends, we're so happy we are here to learn with Professor Sakunda again, calling him in from Israel, from Modi'in tonight. Um, and um, we're thrilled to partner with uh, HEA, our, part, uh, our, our cherished partner in Denver, for this program today. And I'm going to hand over the introduction of our, our scholar today to Mordechai from HEA. Welcome. Shalom, everyone. My name is Mordechai Kedovitz. I am the uh, Program and Engagement Coordinator for the Hebrew Educational Alliance in Denver, Colorado. Uh, I've been a lifelong member since childhood, and uh, we're celebrating our 90th anniversary this year, too. And we're absolutely thrilled to be partnering with Valley Beth Midrash and Rabbi Shmuley and all of the uh, uh, cohorts uh, and uh, scholars in this uh, educational and continuing program. So this is our first time uh, for the season for uh, me and my position here at the shul. And without further ado, uh, I've been loving Shtisel. I've been watching on Netflix. And so without further ado, we want to pass it on to our uh, Rabbi Shai uh, and uh, to take it over. Welcome and welcome. Thank you so much uh, for having me. And thank you especially to Shmuley for uh, inviting me. I think it was just uh, four or five years ago where I had the opportunity to come to Phoenix and, and learn with uh, some of you. So it's wonderful to be with you again, uh, virtually. And uh, I look forward to learning together now and, and hopefully again in the future. So we're gonna do something a little bit different uh, today. I am by training and usually in my day job, I'm not a TV critic, uh, but rather I am a Talmudist, I'm a scholar of, of the Talmud. And yet, uh, what I want to do with you today is take a look at Shtisel, a hit Israeli TV show, um, which began its first season in Israel, at least in 2013. I think it made it to Netflix a few years after that, and then has had two more seasons, season two and season three. If you haven't seen Shtisel yet, I'll do the best I can not to give too many spoiled spoilers away. But if you have seen it, or even if you've read a little bit about the show, you might understand how my wearing this different hat, uh, the, the TV critic or the TV conversant hat, uh, actually makes sense uh, as a Talmudist. And what we're going to do is take a Talmudic look uh, at the show. We're going to do it both in order to just maybe appreciate the show a little bit better, but we're especially gonna do it in order to think uh, deeply about the possibilities of Jewish learning and arguably even the possibilities beyond the Jewish world uh, of both engaging with Jewish sources and just of engaging with the depths and the profundities of sources that exist uh, in the culture and can be tapped uh, even uh, to create excellent television. So we're gonna, I'm gonna try to toggle between a PowerPoint, which will set our conversation uh, going. We'll also look at a source sheet, uh, which I will share uh, with my share screen. And I will try to show a few clips of the show. I understand that on Zoom, sometimes showing video can be a little choppy, but I'll keep these things relatively short. And I hope that we'll be able to talk about them, even if you're not able uh, to see uh, or properly appreciate those uh, those clips. So, without further ado, let's 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 begin. I'm on a podcast. Okay. Oh, 
Okay, so the title of today's uh, talk is Shtisel Shas, a Talmudic look at the hit Israeli uh, TV show. I want to begin with uh, a quote which has made the rounds and I think um, can, can set our conversation going. And that is, quote, Shtisel is the Sopranos of Israel, but with shulent instead of violence. This quote is attributed to Dovla Glickman, He's the actor uh, who plays the lead, uh, the lead character, Shalom Shtisel, the patriarch of the family. And it's a playful quote. I wouldn't read too much into it, but it does a couple of things. The first thing is to position Shtisel uh, within the world of prestige television, uh, the best known example being The Sopranos, where one doesn't just watch TV in order to while away the hours, but actually these TV shows um, have a tremendous amount of work that goes into them, cultural kind of gravitas. Uh, and for that reason, right, he he invokes Sopranos and tries to say that Shtisel is the Sopranos of Israel. He also makes something that I want to take issue with, and that is instead of violence, which of course would set the energy going in a mob in a mob series, it's chillant, uh, the traditional Jewish food uh, that's 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 eaten in, uh, on, on usually on Saturday morning, uh, and of course there is chillant. There are plenty of traditional Jewish foods in the show. But the argument that I'm going to make today is that it's not so much Shtisilus the Sopranos of Israel, but with Shulans instead of violence, but rather with Jewish texts, with Talmud uh, instead of violence. I think that actually gives the language uh, of the show. And that's why, to my mind, uh, it's such an interesting show and series to think with within the context of Jewish learning. Let's start with the most hardcore uh, scene that there is. I want to look very briefly, just to give you an appreciation of the kinds of sources that are used in the show uh, and, and how they make sense within the world, the cultural world of the show. So I'm going to actually share a different screen, uh, which will be which will allow us to uh, watch a, uh, a little clip of this scene that I wanted to talk about. Let's see if this works or if it doesn't. Hey, if it doesn't work, I will describe the, here we go. Okay, I, I don't know if you can see the, the action, I can't see it, but I just wanted you to be able to hear a little bit of the conversation. Um, and that conversation is a sort of typical Talmudic conversation. It's the kind of conversation that adults, learners, in that particular cultural context, men, uh, will be engaged in, it will engage in uh, daily uh, and will find great meaning in. So what I've done on the source sheet that I'm going to share is try to show you what, what's happening uh, in this conversation. The scene takes place 
uh, in the first season. It's a Talmudic conversation that takes place in a kolel, a kind of advanced Talmud academy, where one of the characters, uh, in fact, uh, Sholem Shtisel, that patriarch's son, Svi Aryeh, uh, is sitting and studying Talmud along with his uh, his fellow Talmud learners. Now, we're not going to study this in depth, but it gives you a sense of the, of the complexity of Talmudic learning. The discussion is about whether one can set sail on a ship fewer than three days before the Sabbath. The rabbis say that one cannot set sail on a boat on the Sabbath, and they even say that one can't set sail a few days before the Sabbath begins. And this begins, and thus begins a great discussion where we have medieval commentaries that these characters are quoting, the Tosafot, who are um, um, who who are explaining why when one may not set sail, Rabbeinu Hananel, a North African sage, uh, the Rif, uh, another uh, actually North African sage, Maimonides, perhaps the best known sage, uh, also weighs in on trying to explain why one cannot set sail three days uh, before the Sabbath. So my first example, we're not going to have time to dive into, but gives you a sense of how Talmudic discussion, legal debate, which is and has been part of Jewish culture, is very much present in uh, in this show. But of course, Shtisel Shas uh, is not just there for sort of background noise uh, and filler, but it brings depth to the situations that the characters find themselves in. And it also, right, arguably brings depth uh, to the viewer and to the it informs the lives of, of the viewer. So the next scene that I want to talk about, and we could just look at a picture of it um, on the um, on the PowerPoint, because I understand Netflix is not allowing me uh, to share um, the scenes that I want to share. So let me just share the next scene. Is a scene from the third season where Shulam, uh, who's seated in front of a page of Talmud, uh, a, a tome of Talmud studying, as his brother, who's kind of lurking in the background here, walks in. And Shulam is suffering. In fact, especially in the third season, a lot of the characters are suffering. In this case, a love interest of his uh, has basically been stolen by his brother. And he's trying to find comfort in a piece of, of Talmud. So he's sing-songing uh, a piece of Talmud, smoking a cigarette, which uh, he does. Uh, and here's a quote that I have in front of us before we actually look at the passage together. He said to him, that's what you are crying about. And they both cried. So he's trying to find solace in this, in this piece of Talmud. And let's take a look at what the piece of Talmud actually is. It's a passage from, I should add, Tractate Berachot, uh, a tractate that's interested in blessings and prayers, uh, and also deep theological questions, like this passage. Rabbi Eliezer fell ill. Rabbi Yochanan 
saw that he was lying in a dark room. Rabbi Yochanan, who was very beautiful, exposed his arm and light radiated, filling the house. He saw that Rabbi Elazar was crying and said to him, why are you crying? And then he gives some options. If you are weeping because you did not study as much Torah as you would have liked, we learned one who brings a substantial sacrifice and one who brings a meager one, as long as he directs his heart to heaven, uh, that it's fine. So it doesn't matter if you're able to achieve great religious accomplishment uh, or not, as long as your heart is in the right place, that's enough. So you shouldn't be crying about that. If you are weeping because you lack sustenance and you don't have enough uh, to live, uh, and that is troubling to you, he acknowledges that suffering, but he responds that not everyone merits to eat off of two tables, right? Wealth and Torah. So at least even if you're not wealthy, you were, you did merit to be a Torah scholar. And if you are crying over children who have died, something that was very common in the ancient world and unfortunately is something that people struggle with today, he's able to share a bit of his own pain and say, this is the bone of my 10th son, rather gruesome way of doing so. But the point is, is that just as I have a suffered, you have suffered, there is a way to find meaning somehow in this, as long as we go, do it together. Now that message, right, of taking suffering seriously, of working through suffering, as these rabbis do in this conversation, that's precisely what's happening in that scene, right? The, the creators of the show could have just, again, used the filler, have the music of Talmud study <clears throat> as background noise, but instead they've thematized it and used it as a way to show how studying the Talmud Studying Jewish sources, engaging with these things is a way of dealing with difficulty uh, and, um, and problems in, in life. Let's go back to the, uh, the PowerPoint. And let's think a little bit more about the, um, about the references that really could be found throughout the show, Talmudic references, biblical references, and appreciate sort of what, what's happening. Now, some of these references are like in this scene. This is a scene towards the beginning of the third season where Shalom Shtisel, uh, who was also, at least at that time, the principal of a cheder, of an ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish boys' school, is trying to deal with the discipline uh, issue. He doesn't deal with it successfully, uh, but I won't give away more than that. Uh, and, he's, and, and he says to these boys, Let's go. One righteous person in Sodom should step up and tell me what happened here. He's referring to the well-known uh, argument that Abraham tries to make uh, to God not to destroy the wicked, uh, the, the wicked city of Sodom. And the argument is that even if there's just one person in that city uh, who is righteous, who would welcome in strangers, uh, which the Sodomites did not do, then the city would be worth saving. And just sort of like off the cuff, Shulam Shtisel throws in that reference. It's true to form. It's very much part of that world of Torah scholars. Uh, but it also shows a way of living within these quotes, right, within these, uh, these references. At the same time, <laughs> the show... The show emphasizes that Stiesel is an older man. 
He's human and he botches the references all the time. So here's a great example. He says, when life gives you lemonade, take it, right? He knows that there's something about uh, lemons, lemonade, making the best of the situation, but he botches the reference. Now, I think that there's a tradition that the show is tapping into here beyond just the importance of quotation uh, in the world, uh, in these worlds engaged with Torah study. Uh, and that is a beloved and well-known character from Fiddler on the Roof, uh, which of course began as a character, an important character in Yiddish literature by Shalom Aleichem, the author. And this is Tevya the Milkman. Tevya the Milkman throughout the Tevya cycle and also in Fiddler, uh, I assume many of you have seen it, is constantly quoting the Bible, quoting Jewish sources. And to the uninitiated, it sounds like, wow, Tevya, despite the fact that he's a milkman, is a great uh, is a great Torah scholar. But actually, if you look at some of these quotes, you realize that Tevya, he's not the he's not the brightest bulb. He doesn't really know um, much Torah. He doesn't really know these sources well, and yet he's always he's always quoting them. So here's a favorite of mine, which makes basically no sense. What should be new, I say, the harder I work, the less I have to show for it. It's like it is in the Bible. I not only have no money, I also lack health, wealth, uh, and happiness. The quote does not fit. It has nothing to do with the point that he's that he's making. And yet he drops the quote there. Shalom Aleichem drops the quote there because as part of this culture, of, as part of this broad, broadly learned Jewish culture, Shalom wants to participate. He wants to be part of referencing sources, thinking about the meaning of sources, and doing things uh, with them. What I want to focus on at the time that we have uh, before questions, and I'm sure, especially because we're talking about a show, uh, there'll be plenty of those, is <clears throat> a rather complicated source, which I think is worth unpacking and really spending some time with the text more than we th than we have until now. I'll set the scenes. So again, I can't really uh, properly share the, the clip, but the scene is between the next generation uh, on the show, actually two generations, I should say, um, younger than Shulam Shtisel. Shulam has a granddaughter named Ruchami, uh, who in the first season essentially eloped uh, with a young Torah scholar, whom despite not having great wealth and not having sort of external trappings of a great mate, has a passion for Torah learning and Torah study. And she stayed with, um, with this young man, Hanina is his name, throughout the seasons. As, as is the case for many of the Shtisel family, life is not easy for um, Ruchami and Hanina. And one of the things they struggle with in season three is with infertility. Ruchami is not able to conceive and it brings her great pain. Part of season three deals with uh, this struggle that she and the couple has and the great lens, the dangerous lens, as we'll soon see, that Ruhama tries to go uh, to be able to um, bear a child. And Hanina is trying to find a way to express his love 
for his wife uh, to show her support. And he's not always successful. Uh, he's a young man uh, and he makes mistakes. And this scene, in many senses, is about a mistake that he makes. He comes back early from the yeshiva for lunch uh, to be with his, with his wife. And he wants to give her an anniversary gift, uh, essentially. It's not a piece of jewelry. Uh, it's not even something that conventionally would be thought of as an anniversary gift. But instead, it's a very um, abbreviated, nearly incomprehensible piece of Torah, uh, of Jewish learning, an innovation in Jewish learning that he came up with and he wants to share uh, with, his, uh, with his wife. What I want to do is actually I want to try to decode uh, what this note is that he gave uh, to Ruhami, because I think once again, it'll allow us uh, to appreciate not merely the use of Jewish learning as filler, as language and as sound of the show, but also that it really brings um, depth and plot uh, to the show as well. So let's take a look at the, uh, at the source sheet. What I've done, and in my day job, again, I'm a Talmudist, so I sometimes find myself reading medieval Talmud manuscripts and trying to figure out what they say. Uh, in this case, what I did was I created a screenshot from this scene, <clears throat> and I copied as best as I could the handwriting uh, that uh, is in front of us. I translated it, and let's try to make some sense of it. So... It's a new interpretation. This is a translation of, of this gift from the love of Jacob and Rachel. And it's also about the removal of the heavy stone, according to what the Maharsha says. This is the name of a um, relatively late Jewish commentator on the Talmud. The matter of, removed, of removing stones in the event of a collapse on the Sabbath, for from the beginning of the story, when Jacob and Beersheba, you won't be able to make sense of that, not only because the note is not entirely visible, but also because this is a way of writing this kind of Torah, laconically, just really kind of referring to references and without filling in the details. However, the note does give us something to work with, which I think the show is trying to convey uh, as well. The first thing that it's, that it's reminding of us is one of the great tragic love stories uh, of the Torah, uh, of, of, of the book of Genesis. And that is the story of Jacob and Rachel. Yaakov and Rachel. Let's read a little bit of this story and, and see what's, what's happening uh, in, in that story and why it might be related to these two characters, Ruchami and Hanina, uh, in the show. So Jacob resumed his journey and came to the land of the Easterners. There before his eyes was a well in the open. Three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it, for the flocks were watered from that well. The stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the stone would be rolled from the mouth of the well and the sheep watered. Then the stone would be put back in its place in the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my friends, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. 
He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, yes, we do. He continued, is he well? They answered, yes, he is. And there is his daughter, Rachel, coming with the flock. He said, it is still broad daylight, too early to round up the animals, water the flock and take them to pasture. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are rounded up. Then the stone is rolled off the mouth of the well and we water the sheep. While he was speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's flock, for she was a shepherd. And when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of his uncle Laban, and the flock of his uncle Laban, Jacob went up and rolled the stone off the mouth of the well and watered the flock of his uncle Laban. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and broke into tears. So again, this is sort of the opening scene in this tragic love story between Jacob and Rachel. There's a lot of sort of prosaic details that at first glance do not seem very important. Why do we need to know about the choreography between the shepherds and the shepherdess coming to water the flock when the stone can be taken off uh, and when it cannot? And yet for some reason, it seems important, right? There's a principle in uh, Jewish hermeneutical principle, a principle in Jewish interpretation, that the Torah does not simply waste words, but every word, even every letter, uh, contains meaning. And the commentators, as is their want, try to find meaning and various meanings uh, in, in this scene. Some of the things that are apparent, especially as a kind of foreshadowing of the tragic love story where Rachel is barren, has difficulty with having children, and even ultimately succumbs to, um, uh, to a dangerous pet pregnancy where she dies while Benjamin is being, uh, is, is, um, uh, is being born, uh, her second and last son, is that there is an issue that Rachel and ultimately Jacob will with her are going to be confronted, a challenge, right? And that challenge can be thought of in erotic terms um, as dealing with a well that is blocked, a well that has waters, that has the potential for life, but that potential for life uh, is fraught. And the negotiation between Jacob and the shepherds, and ultimately the superhuman ability that he has uh, to remove this, this rock could be interpreted as relating to the difficulties that the couple is going to face with infertility and with the dangers actually of fertility uh, that Rachel um, experiences. Again, I don't wanna give spoilers away, but if you have watched the third season, some of this will, will, resonate, uh, will resonate with you. So one of the things that Hanina mentioned in his note was this heavy rock that was on the well, uh, which is a reference to this a story. He also refers to another important rock or set of rocks in Jewish learning, and that is in a legal context. When there is a rock slide and people need to be saved. Now, generally speaking, on the Sabbath, the rabbis say people should not be moving rocks around, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work with the spirit of the Sabbath. It doesn't follow sort of the sacredness of the Sabbath. But if there is an accident and we know that human life uh, is at risk, then the Mishnah 
an important uh, early rabbinic text, makes it clear that one, even if there are doubts and uncertainties, one will remove this rock slide. This is a Mishnah from Tractate Yoma, and I deliberately put translated this uh, text and put it in a more poetic form to show you some of the poetic principles uh, that are at work in the Mishnah, in this Mishnah, and how we'll see it actualized in just a second. So this is the Mishnah. Once one upon whom a rock slide fell, uncertainty whether he is there, uncertainty whether he is not there, uncertainty whether he is alive, uncertainty that he is dead, uncertainty that he's a Gentile, uncertainty that he's an Israelite. They remove the rock slide from him. If they find him alive, they remove the rock slide from him. If dead, they let him be. Now, rabbinic texts, especially the Mishnah, at first glance are entirely legal and maybe even legalistic. They're interested in Jewish law, the intricacies of Jewish law, the sort of discussions that I mentioned at the beginning uh, with that scene where they're debating whether and how and why not uh, you one cannot set sail a few days before the Sabbath. Yet there is a poetics uh, to, um, to rabbinic literature, even the most legal discussions. And often those poetics are very interested in existential questions as we find in this, in this particular Mishnah. Now, I won't spend much time on this, but I do want to show you that even before the show, before Shtisel, uh, this Mishnah received a sort of fully poetic expression in the work of a poet uh, named El Haranir. Uh, I translated very quickly some of this poem that shows you how a text like that Mishnah can be thoroughly poetic, can just turn into what conventionally we would see as a poem. So this is the beginning of the poem. One upon whom a rock slide fell, uncertainty whether he is alive, uncertainty whether he is dead, uncertainty whether he is there, uncertainty whether he is not there. They remove from him, even though there are some uncertainties. One upon whom no rock slide fell, and there is uncertainty whether he is alive, and there is uncertainty whether he is dead. Who in fact knows of him? How many uncertainties does he have? And the poem goes on to explore the different existential questions that the Mishnah initially raised. This poem is working within a tradition that's actually quite common, is even at the bedrock uh, of modern Hebrew literature, where traditional Jewish sources, um, even religious, halachic, legalistic sources, are given poetic and literary expression. And if this poem is one example of it, I think the scene in Shtisel uh, is another. He's both thinking about this love story of Jacob and Rachel, and that obviously has resonance uh, in terms of this, um, this couple. But he's also thinking of the existential questions of the removal of the heavy stone, uh, which, um, which is invoked in that Mishnah Yoma uh, as a way of thinking about existential questions. Now that existential question, and with this, th this will be the last uh, source that I want to look, look at. Let me just stop this share screen and we'll go back to the PowerPoint. Literally has to do with a life and death. 
Here we have in front of us Hadina Tonic, that young man uh, uh, who's married to Ruhama, Ruhami, whom I mentioned, and he's sitting and speaking with the head of the yeshiva in which he studies, trying to deal with a, a, an emergency question uh, that has been raised about him and his wife, and particularly about the health of, of his wife. He doesn't know what to do. He goes to the rabbi and he wants to receive guidance. Really what he wants is just for the rabbi to tell him what to do. It's a critical question. He doesn't know how to navigate it and he wants a magical answer. Now in his wisdom, this rabbi tapping into an old Jewish tradition says, I can't give you a magical answer. You need to figure out the answer on your own. Now you won't do it literally on your own. What you're going to do is you're going to go back to the wellsprings of tradition. You're going to go and study. You're going to think about uh, Torah. And hopefully through that process, you yourself will be able to formulate uh, a response. Now, Hanina is not ready to accept this. He wanted an answer. He wanted it quick. <laughs> there was a, a great amount of urgency uh, in this scene. And yet, the rabbi persists and he says, go into the study hall, spend some time studying and let's see what happens. So he does this and he comes across a passage that I wanna look at with you together. It's a passage from the Babylonian Talmud. It's actually in a section that deals with uh, the, uh, the possibilities of, the real possibilities of death during childbirth. And it's no accident, I think, that this is the uh, passage that he, that he chooses to study. This is how the passage goes. The sages taught, one who became ill and tended toward death they say to him, confess, as all those executed by the courts confess. When a person goes out to the marketplace, he should consider himself as someone who has been handed over to a soldier, meaning that he's in a vulnerable place. If his head hurt, he should consider it as if they placed him in a chain. If he climbed into bed and fell ill, he should consider himself as if they took up him up to the gallows to be judged. So the, the passage begins with, a very, very serious, a grave look at moments of crisis that one experiences when they feel that their health is in danger, right? Even when you go into the marketplace where there's risk, you should consider what's happening quite seriously. But especially in moments where you experience health crisis, one has to be very, very careful and consider the gravity of the situation. The passage continues as follows, right? And with regard to divine judgment, these are a person's advocates, repentance and good deeds. So here the passage is already giving a strategy for dealing with this situation. And even if there are 999 asserting his guilt and only one asserting his innocence, he is spared. And so even if one can imagine the heavenly court having a debate about whether this person should live, and there's only one force that is vouching for him, that's enough. 
a quote, a verse from Job is quoted. If there be for him an angel, an advocate, one, one among a thousand to vouch for a man's uprightness, then he is gracious unto him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. Rabbi Eliezer, son of Rabbi Yossi Glili, says, even if there are 999 portions within the same angel accusing him and one portion asserting his innocence, he is spared, as it is stated in Advocate, one among a thousand. So Rabbi Yossi Glili is trying to make an even more extreme uh, argument that if one uses these strategies of repentance and good deeds, even if it seems everything is tilted against him, somehow he will be able to persevere. This is the passage that this character comes across uh, in this scene after he's been told uh, to go immerse himself in Torah study. And he realizes uh, in, it sounds sappy, but the scene works, and I wish Netflix would allow me to share it. Uh, he realizes that his, his partner, Ruhami, actually is one among a thousand, and he decides to go in one particular direction, which despite the risk, turns out to have been maybe the right uh, the right decision. So this sort of is th this this source and the set of sources surrounding this character in many ways is kind of the pinnacle of what we could call Stiesel's Shas. It's not merely that we have the sounds of Torah study in the background, just as we have the Jerusalem stone, which gives us the setting. It's not even just that we have playful references that pepper the speech of the characters, but a lot of the depth of the characters, of the situations that they find themselves in, of the scenes uh, that we watch them in, is just powered by a real engagement with Jewish sources. Whether it's that gift that he gives his wife, uh, which is a laconic but quite meaningful uh, innovation uh, in a few topics uh, of, of Torah, whether it is at a moment of crisis, how he manages to come up with decision, Torah study is, um, is paramount and it allows the characters to move forward to navigate the difficulties of, of the world. The last, the last point I wanna make before opening it up for questions, um, is in the penultimate scene of the of the third season. And it's not a spoiler because it's not important for the plot, uh, but it's a, it's a message that I think allows us to make sense of what this show is doing and why these sources matter, matter so much. So in this final scene, we have that main character, Shulam Stiesel, is implores his son and his brother to stay with him for one last glass of seltzer. He's always giving people seltzer. It's a way he shows his love. Um, I guess it's an old Jewish way of showing love. And he asks them to stay, drink a cup of seltzer and kibitz a little bit. And while he's sitting with them, he's trying to remember a reference. This is sort of, it's a meta moment in the show. He recalls reading a Yiddish author. He points out that this is not a religious uh, author, but even someone who he calls a heretic. He can't remember who he is. Finally, he figures out that it's Isaac Bashevis Singer, right? the great Nobel laureate uh, 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 for Yiddish. And the quote is that 
every person is a walking cemetery, meaning the dead never leave. The dead accompany one throughout life. One is, even in a biological sense, the the ultimate sort of manifestation of these earlier generations. And culturally, personally, individually, one carries with them all of these uh, people from the past. And for that reason, in a very Gothic, Beshevis sort of way, every person is a walking cemetery. And as the scene unfolds, one sees in the background all of the characters who have who are deceased on the show, whose presence actually is what makes the show move, what makes the show, what allows the show to, to continue. And the message, I think to me, uh, in terms of appreciating the, the way in which the show is constantly engaging with sources, traditions, references from the past, is that the way of being in the world, the best way of being in the world is exactly in this, in this fashion, that one does not live alone, even if one wants to live alone. One constantly is accompanied by these people who were important, these ideas that were important, these texts that were important. It's certainly a valuable idea for Jewish learning, but let's remember this show has very, very broad appeal. I think it's a message that resonates with people, whether they're Jewish or not, whether they necessarily know and can catch the reference to this passage of Talmud, to that source in, in the Torah. And that is that these texts, these ideas um, from the past stay with us and actually make our lives uh, meaningful. So I'm going to open it up for questions. And uh, it was a pleasure sharing some ideas. And I'd love to learn from you as well. Yes, I see feel Lauren. Free feel free to unmute. You can, y'all can go ahead and unmute. Lauren, go ahead. You can. Hi, um, I'm a big fan of the show. What strikes me the most is that Akiva is one of the few characters who has a lot of integrity and suffers the most. And mm. a lot of the suffering is actually caused by his father, Shulam. I see yes. Shulam as a character who's, who's devious, self-serving, selfish and really interferes with his family in a way that really brings misery upon them. Any comments? <laughs> I, I agree with you. He certainly can be devious. He is a very, very flawed uh, character. And yet, you know, sort of to refer to return to that uh, point I made at the very beginning, which actually is a quote by the actor who plays Ashtisol. And that is the reference to the Sopranos. The same way that Tony Soprano, who is a murderer, is a terrible human being, nevertheless has some qualities um, that are worth thinking through and working through and appreciating. I think Shulam, one can do the same. I agree. <laughs> he, is not, he is not a paragon of virtue. Um, and he does bring a lot of suffering and uh, to the show. But he also suffers uh, on his own, and that suffering is sort of open for us to share with uh, in uh, as we watch the series. So th thanks for that that comment. Yeah, Mona. 
Thank you. This is really fascinating. And one of the things I wanted to just comment on is uh, your, it, I think it's your Hiddish of connecting the story of Rachel at the well and moving the stone and fertility and infertility and also Ruhami's difficulties getting pregnant. Is that your Hiddish or did, is that from somewhere else? Um, it's, it's Hanina's Hiddish in a sense. In other words, he in that little piece of paper does refer to those sources. But yeah, that's how I made sense of it. I didn't. It's I came up with that. I've never heard own. a connection between Rachel's infertility and the well, the covering of the well. Oh, that that idea I have seen. I can't remember where that idea of sort of the meaning of the uncovering of the well is is there in the sources. Yeah. Thank you. Lovely. I saw another hand up before, and I, yeah, Joan. Just a comment, not a question. I'm a big sure. fan of the show. And I'm hardly a Talmudic scholar. And I have friends who like the show who aren't Jewish. I think the key to the show is that it's very human. It's like mm -hmm. a soap opera without the sex and violence. And even though these people, you would think you can't relate to them because their way of life is so different, have the same kind of issues, the same kind of happiness, the same kind of problems as anyone else. You want to... You know, you want to um, make your father proud, but you want to be one career and he wants you to be another. You can't have children. Your husband leaves you and you don't want anyone to know. When he comes back, you can kind of forgive him, but your daughter can't. There's a lot of very humanness in this, no matter even if you get rid of the Jewish underlying of it. And I think that's part of the secret to the appeal of the show. Yes, thank you. That's that's an excellent point. And it what's sort of interesting about that point is how, first of all, it motivates the um, the fealty to accuracy that the show um, invested in. Again, it's not just about background noise and and sort of putting a ultra orthodox hat on a character, just assuming that it all come together. Despite the fact that all of the actors, all of the main actors in the show are entirely secular, do not live as ultra-Orthodox Jews, it was important to embody this difference in order to precisely be this point, that people, yes, want to be able to um, watch a show that shows these human struggles that are relatable to them, that are familiar to them. But they also paradoxically want to do it in, in the case of this show in a way where at first glance, these people seem so profoundly different, right? So the poetics is sort of like moving between the familiar and the radically different. And it's amazingly successful, I would agree with you. Yeah, I see Marsha, uh, you have your hand up. Yes. Am I unmuted? Yes. Thank you. So I'm getting, I'm reading, um, my name is Asher Lev for the second time. And I'm thinking how perfect that I signed on for this wonderful teaching that you've given. I too uh, loved the series and hope that in the future something else is, they go forward with it. I think you know, here we're dealing with artists, and in a way, we're all artists in life, trying to find meaning. 
And I'm always struck how Torah is giving us um, scenario after scenario of struggle in life. And I think this is another brilliant example of that. And as you just mentioned, um, so we the exterior, the dress, some of the foods they eat may have them appear as different from, but we know the interior on that level, um, the striving for reaching for heaven is, is the very much the same. And I very much appreciate the thought and the brilliance that you brought us today. So when we attend our Torah study on Shabbos, um, I'm going to bring this up because I know there are other people who have loved the show. And I'm wondering if your talk will be available on some level. And how is that? Thanks for your comments. And uh, maybe, Eddie, uh, you could an answer how that uh, will, uh, will be available. Yeah, thank you so much, friends. After this uh, call is over, once the video is uploaded and edited, you can find it on, on our website at valleybaypedrash.org. And it's going to be part of our learning library where you'll have access to all of our classes. Great. Friends, feel free to unmute. Okay, friends. Well, um, Shai, if you'd like to give any last words, um, that would that would be amazing. Uh, we can wrap up today's event. Okay, I'll just conclude by thanking you uh, for being good listeners, and especially for some of the excellent comments uh, that uh, that you shared. And um, for those interested, I have written a couple of articles about Stiesel, some of the things I touched on. Um, they're available at the Jewish Review of Books, where I'm a contributing editor. So you're welcome to, um, to sort of search uh, in the author page and, and look for Stiesel there. And, uh, and again, uh, I believe, as Eddie described, this, this talk will be available uh, through the VBM website. So thank you for the opportunity. And I hope, uh, I hope you have a great uh, rest of your Thursday, a good Shabbat. Um, and uh, stay well. Take care, friends. Thank you.